Philip Adams, what's up, man? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm good. So uh, it's been, dude, it's been uh, probably like two years. Yeah. I've had the show for like two and a half years. And you were one of the first, probably in the first ten episodes. I think you were you were on you and um, my cousin actually, who um, Greg Walker, yeah. who's a police officer, and that was an interesting conversation. But we never um, since then. You and I, we, we we know each other, and um, I you know we meet every week in this networking group, and I hear all these things like every week you talking about you know certain scenarios of what you do, you know, being an attorney and you know in criminal and personal injury, and I typically think that stuff's boring. And mundane because most people do because the way that that's portrayed, but it's number one, it's someone's livelihood. And then number two, it's just extremely interesting how you break everything down. So, man, I just want to jump in the nuts and bolts. I mean, I guess, um, we talked a long time ago about where you came up and you know what you did, but I mean, let's just go into your, you know, straight into the profession aspect and kind of run through it and what you're doing now. And then we can talk about all the other stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, in terms of what I do now, like you alluded to earlier, I handle criminal law and personal injury law cases. For the criminal law cases, I do everything from, you know, low-level stuff to high-level stuff. So traffic tickets all the way up to homicide cases. Um, and for injury cases, everything from car accidents to slip and falls to 18-wheeler accidents, wrongful death cases, things like that. My practice is... Uh, usually pretty evenly divided between criminal law and personal injury cases, but it can fluctuate at times depending on what cases are coming in. And, yeah, I stay very busy. I tend to work very long hours. Um, and that often means working on the weekends, but I do that because that's what it takes to get the results that I want. Yeah. Well, I, I admire that about you too because I, I feel like that you go above and beyond. And I, I haven't been with your clients personally, um, but I just, from what I see on the outside looking, I feel like you go above and beyond and you actually give a shit, right? You know, yeah. so what's your past? Um, you know, I know you work for the state, I believe, didn't you work? Yeah. State, yeah. So, yeah, let's let's go through that. What, what all did you do there, and then what made you kind of want to get into this? So, when I while I was in law school at the LSU Law Center in Baton Rouge, I clerked with the East Baton Rouge Parish DA's office, and that office has over... What does that mean when someone says clerk? So... Basically, I was like, I was doing grunt work. I okay. do legal research and writing. Um, I would attend court with them, you know, help them bring their files to court. And Is also, this in line with like what a paralegal would do or it, c- kinda, similar? Yeah, kind of like that, but just more of like a souped up paralegal. Okay, you're, got you. you know, law students have <clears throat> more knowledge typically than paralegals when it comes to like being able to help do legal research and writing to help attorneys. And so I did that and then, um, did it for two years, actually, while I was in law school. But while doing that, also got sworn in as a Rule 20 attorney and had a chance to handle actual criminal cases in court, but under the supervision of a prosecutor. Right. So before I even graduated from law school, I had already been in criminal court countless times. And you were on the prosecution side. Yeah. And now you're on the other side. Yeah. How does that, how does that play out? Like, what, why? You know, like, why would, did you not go the route of what you, you know, started doing and had practice in, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So I think that what both sides do is extremely important. You know, if you're going to have a system of justice, you've got to have a system in which uh, both sides do their jobs. And so I knew that I always wanted to do defense work. 
from probably the first semester of law school. Oh, so you didn't know that you didn't like get into doing prosecution and say, okay, I don't like this. I'd rather be on the other side. Right. Okay. Gotcha. That, that was, that was intentional on my part. I wanted to get some internal experience in the prosecutor's office before, you know, going straight into defense work at the law school. And so I did that, had a chance to learn how the internal, you know, prosecutorial decisions are made and so forth. Um, made friendships there. And then after I I graduated and and passed the bar exam, applied for a job with a defense firm in Baton Rouge, doing only criminal defense, and did that for several years there in Baton Rouge. So Nice. And then you moved up here, and uh, we're in North Louisiana. We were talking about in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then you got with um, Elton Ritchie. Yeah. And then you were associate for him for how long? For one year. It was was the year before he he planned on retiring. He had told me that. But I met met Elton. It's kind of kind of funny because I met Elton uh, before I got hired, right? Yeah. But so the hiring hiring aspect, you know, we we, we both met at a Louisiana Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers (CLE) for continuing legal education, and he had mentioned that he had a job open. He was thinking about retiring, needed needed an associate to help for a year, and. We struck up conversation, and I decided to run with that because I wanted to make my way back to the Arklatex because I've got family in Natchitoches Parish and just wanted to be closer to them. Yeah, to right. where if I want to go visit and see, you know, my mom and dad or some of my my brothers, I can drive an hour and be there and not have to drive several hours like I did whenever I lived in Baton Rouge and was practicing down there. But um, Elton said, "Yeah, come on," and so I went and worked for him for a year. But I had actually met Elton while I was working in that firm in. Uh, before I started working for that firm in Baton Rouge. Okay. So when I was applying for for different possible jobs while I was taking the uh, bar exam, Elton had actually uh, brought up the idea of me working for him because we'd established contact, but I turned him down. (laughs) And took a a job with the firm in and uh, the firm in Baton Rouge, but I actually wish I had taken a job with him initially. Yeah. So, but it's kind of funny how sometimes things come back yeah. full circle. Right. So. Well, so since then, uh, you, you worked with him for a little while, and then you went out on your own immediately thereafter. Yeah. Um, how long have you been out on your own now? Gosh, it's been, uh, I'm in my eighth year of legal practice. So I got my, graduated in 2015. I was in Baton Rouge for about two and a half years. So, I mean, you're looking at like, probably over five years now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what have you seen? Like, let's just jump into it. So like, what have you seen that, that's, that is just screams to people like, or what screams to you to, to share people like with people like, um, there's that, uh, there's always that lingo. Like if you get in a wreck, call an attorney, yeah. you know, you know, but, but like what, what's important? Like, because I feel like so many people don't understand what an attorney does they just know I'm in trouble or yeah. I may be in trouble even though I didn't do anything. I need to pay this person because they know more about the law than I do. Yeah. But I'm more like, and we've had conversations outside of this, and that's why I want to do this. I'm more like to hear the um, the side of your own, like the defense side, because there's so many people that are wrongfully accused and prosecuted that shouldn't be. Yeah. And like, so yeah, anyways, let's get into it. So for me, I think the thing that screams out to me and in, in, in legal practice is making sure that I do my job in a thorough manner. So I believe that you, you've got to be almost hyper meticulous. 
because if you're not, something's going to be missed. And I've seen time and time again the cases in which police officers failed to adequately investigate, cases in which uh, defendants were not even interviewed but an arrest was still made. So, you, so police come into a case having one side of, of, of a case, not having heard from the, yeah. the side that's actually being accused of the crime itself, right? Um, I've seen you know, car accident cases in which adjusters will get a police report but not bother to get body cam footage associated with that police report, dash cam footage, or, or written witness statements from the scene. Like, I'll give you an example. I had a car accident case recently in which the report listed the accident as being a minor accident. Mm-hmm. But then when I get witness statements and get pictures of what happened, I see a vehicle that's total and that, that's just completely crumpled up. Yeah, but it's and, a minor accident. But it was right. characterized by the officers being a minor accident. Why do you think that so, is, though? I think that you it's... You think it's workload? I think workload plays a role. I think laziness. Depending on the city, too, is it was this in locally? This is Shreveport. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, workload definitely plays a role. I think laziness plays a role for sometimes. You know, oversight does. But the thing is, if you're an officer and you sign your name to a police report, you're implying that you've read that report, you've reviewed it, and that what you put into that that report is accurate and it's complete. (laughs) And if you put into a report that the accident's minor, but then we've got photographs that show that a vehicle looks like somebody dropped a bomb on it, that yeah. calls into question your credibility as an officer. Right. But That's something that I feel like is an issue a lot. Um, my wife's a, um, a police officer, and she's so OCD and over the top um, that she's always going back and correcting other officers' reports and making sure they're right and, like, talking to them or whatever. But – um like being on the side you're on of it, um, like especially the criminal side. Like, so what's some instances you've seen to where you're like, I'm doing everything I can, but this like, there's a wall here. You know what I mean, or you know something like that. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you let, let me elaborate a little yeah. bit. That way, you, that way you can get a little <laughs> deeper. Okay, so like, so say, say I did something, but. I didn't really want to admit it, but maybe I didn't do it to the full extent that I was being charged. Right. But I still had some inclination to, you know, doing it or, you know, so I was somewhat kind of involved, but it wasn't to that extreme, but I didn't feel comfortable telling you yeah. that because then I think it would eradicate me basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what I, what I do in a situation like that is, and it really starts from day one, whenever a client comes to my office and we do an initial consultation, the way that I structured the initial consultation is I don't make it rush. It's not you've got 10 minutes and then you have to get out the door. Right. It's not, I once had an initial consult, and I kid you not, it lasted seven hours. Holy shit. Yeah. I tell that to people, are like, what? You, what kind of case was it? It was a, a self-defense case okay. so, involving an aggravated assault with the firearm charge. That's um, the kind of stuff I want to talk about. Yeah. 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 So, it, but, and I didn't even realize how much time had was passing by until I went and looked at the clock. <laughs> so, yeah. But I got so engrossed in questioning this guy and getting the de- as much detail as I could from him so I could give him uh, an you know, adequate recommendation on how to proceed that seven hours had passed. And this was on a Friday That's crazy. whenever he came and consult- consulted him and his wife um, in that case. But So I sit the client down. I do a, a thorough, detailed initial consultation with no time limitations. I, it lasts as long as it needs to for me to get the information that I need for that consult. It doesn't mean I won't do follow-up consultation down the road to ask additional questions or get 
more information if new evidence comes to light or what have you. But at the initial stage, I'm going to make it thorough. Um, but I do that, and I let the client know that, look, you've got to feel comfortable with me, with me for you to hire me. And I have to feel comfortable with you. And one thing about that is that you have to be honest with me. Yeah. I have to know exactly what happened, not to judge you, because there's nothing you can tell me that will surprise me, not, not when it comes to criminal law. And if you tell me exactly what happened, what you tell me is confidential, for one thing. But B, it enables me to give you reasonable advice. Yeah. So if you did something that was wrong, that violated the law, you need to tell me that because you could have been overcharged. Yeah. Or maybe you were improperly charged. You were charged with one charge, but you should have been charged with something else. If you've been overcharged, then we can put together a case, a defense, and then try to get the charge dropped down to a lower level to get you an outcome that is proportionate to what you actually did. And if the prosecutor won't do that and we're forced to try the case, then we can present that argument to a jury and let them make a judgment call on what they think is the best yeah. verdict in your case. Well, that's something that's always scary too, right? Because yeah. you have to tell any client going into a trial that, hey, there is a chance you could be convicted here. Right. And But if you take a deal early on – then you know exactly what you're walking into, right? Right. And I feel like that's something that scares the shit out of a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Even if they know, even if they know that they may not have done that, right? they still at least know what they're looking at, but walking in there blindly, it scares the shit out of a lot of people. So you have to instill that confidence in them, you know, or at least know what the hell you're talking about to, to be confident on your side too, to walk in there. Right. Yeah, I do. It's, and when it, when it comes, you do have to be realistic with clients because right. you can be 100% factually innocent in a case, go before a jury, and still be convicted. And people say, well, how in the world is that possible? It's possible because you hear every day about people who spent 10, 15, 20, 30 years or more in prison and their convictions get overturned because they were wrongfully convicted. In fact, the reason why we have appeals courts that exist is to review what happens at the trial court level to make sure that judges and juries are actually getting it right because they don't always get it right. Um, so we, we know it's possible because jurors are human beings. Sometimes they have to make close judgment calls. Yeah. They can be influenced or swayed by uh, biased prosecutors. They don't. They don't have legal training, so they. Well, they could just. They could say you're guilty because they don't like the way you look. That's possible. Or yeah. your skin color, or it's, or your you know, or your gender. That's very much like, possible. Because uh, that's what always that's what's always crazy to me. And we talked about this a little bit. I was like, we gotta talk about this shit <laughs> sure. That's what's so crazy to me is like you get jury duty. First off, you don't want to be there. Yeah. Like you gotta go. It inflicts with your schedule. You usually don't have that big of a heads up a couple weeks or whatever, um, or month or something like that, whatever it is. You gotta go, you show up, do it, and um you don't wanna be there. You know, and then like you get in there and then you don't really have like you said, you don't have any like any type of training, you know, if you're just a regular civilian that hasn't been, maybe a few people, maybe, you know, some type of scenario, but probably never even been, you know, in a courtroom, much less, you know, actually having an opinion. It just, it's crazy to me that that's something that, that still works or that's still used, excuse me. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting system because there are other countries in which people don't have the right to a jury trial. They're tried by judges. Yeah. The judges, the judges find make findings of fact, and they also uh, make findings of law. What well, do you think so, that? I don't mean to cut you off, but do you think so? Like, do you think that this is instilled because it gives some type of um, humanity to the judgment? 
you know, because the judge may just be ironclad about the facts here, but when you have a panel of jurors, that they may have some, yeah, a little bit more leniency in certain areas. I think that that's a really good point. I think that that is definitely one of the factors that plays a role in why we still have retained the jury trial yeah. right here in the United States, because when you've got, say, you try before an ordinary jury of, of twelve of your peers. When you've got 12 people who all have to come together unanimously to find you guilty or, or not guilty, you've got 12 potential viewpoints in this group. How does that process work? So they sit – I don't even know. I've never even been to jury. Yeah. So how does that work? So people will get called for jury service, and, and then groups of jurors will, will, will be, you know, ushered into the courtroom. The attorneys will both take chances asking questions of the jurors and kind of lightly introducing the jurors to what their cases will be about. They can't get into too much detail, though, not until trial starts. And once they've uh, asked questions, they can then uh, present challenges for cause. If a juror, for whatever reason, is believed by the attorney to not be able to be fair and impartial, an attorney can lodge a challenge for cause, or attorneys can actually use what are called peremptory challenges, too, in which they can challenge someone just because they don't like the way the attorney looked at them or their client. However, there are limitations on that. You can't you can't use a peremptory challenge on the basis of race or gender. That's not allowed. But you can use a peremptory challenge for pretty much any yeah, other but you reason. You could have that basis and just lie and say it's something else, you right? You could. You could yeah. exactly. Yeah. There are ways of detecting that. That's called a Batson challenge. And and one of the one of the telltale signs is that is if, say, a prosecutor or a defense attorney, and it mainly applies to prosecutors, but it still applies to defense attorneys as well, is when one side is, say, striking all white jurors or all, all, all black jurors, and it starts to become apparent that this person's trying to get a jury that is composed of one race or um, striking all female jurors because I don't think it would be good for my male client who's been charged with battering his wife, for instance, right. or, or vice versa. But, but you can't – I suppose there would be a way to do that if you were being dishonest and unethical as an attorney – and not draw red flags. And so, in, in some sense, the system relies upon attorneys as officers of the court making sure that they act in a professional and ethical manner. They don't always do that, and that's why we have attorney disciplinary boards. So Yeah, and I mean, you guys are pretty strict about that, too. You yeah. make one, one good fuck-up, and you're pretty much out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got to redo everything, right? Yeah. I mean, you, 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 or you, never can do it again, depending on the severance of yeah, it. Yeah, you can completely lose the right, the privilege, I think, of being able to practice law if you if you make a mistake that violates the rules of professional conduct. And uh, the state Supreme Court believes that that's, that's needed. So yeah. the state Supreme Court polices uh, the privilege of practicing law in our state. So if you get hauled up before them, they have the ability to strip you of your license to practice law. Damn. So after all that money and time, and you just make yeah. one mistake, and yeah, yeah, it's got, it would have to, usually have to be significant. Um, like an example would be like if a client, if a, an attorney uh, embezzled client funds or uh, went out and committed. A major crime, then he, then he or she could lose his or her right to practice law. If an attorney got a DWI, you might could have your, your law license suspended for some period of time, maybe six months to a year, depending on the discretion of the Office of Disciplinary Counsel and, and or the state Supreme Court if it made, made it that far. But usually the punishment is going to be proportionate to the violation that's committed by the attorney. Gotcha. Well, uh, what's your, like, where are you at on, like, all these wrongful, like, 
people have been wrongfully accused for so many things, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I know you're familiar with the, We talked about this, like the Innocent Project and, yeah. like, um, things that people have got into that, you know, just because, for instance, like a scenario, someone is c- accused of rape, right? And this woman's maybe she's in this alleyway, and then police get there, and they immediately just see a, a gentleman walking down the, you know, alleyway or whatever, and they assume that's the person and then next thing you know that person's in jail for 10 years you know what i mean and they didn't do anything but they didn't have a chance to argue the case one because they um they were going up against you know maybe they didn't have any money you know for an attorney or you know just all those scenarios like what is that that has to like for me like i'm not in your shoes and i don't do what you do but that that has to be something that like makes you want to work even more towards you know defending those people no i completely agree i mean the, the thought of like having a client who were to be wrongfully convicted would be something that would just keep me up at night. Yeah. So, and I, you can ask my wife, you can ask anybody who has been a client of mine and who knows how I work my cases. I'm so methodical and so meticulous that some people would say probably overly so, but I'd rather be known for that than be known for being, not being that way. Right. So, because I want to make sure that like justice is done in every sense of the word, not just, whether or not the person's guilty or innocent, but, like, is this person been overcharged? Is this proportionate? And what have you. But, like, I mean, to take the example that you kind of alluded to about the idea of a woman being in an alleyway and being raped, I'll give you an example. There was a, I can't remember the name of the case, but there was a woman, a white woman who had been raped by an African-American male, and she had identified this defendant on the witness stand in court and said that was the man who had raped her. And then decades later, DNA evidence came out showing that he had not done that. Really? And so, but she had made an eyewitness misidentification because of this distress and heat of the moment, probably because it was a cross-racial identification, yeah. which she may not have been as familiar with, you know, uh, like facial appearance right. of somebody of a different ethnic background. There's a lot of psychological research that shows uh, that, for instance, if you're white, you tend to be more easily able to identify a witness who's also is white, who has a white face. But if it's someone of a different background, perhaps Hispanic or African-American, you could you have a higher propensity to make a mistake in eyewitness identification. Because especially if you live in an area where you have less exposure to people of different ethnic yeah, backgrounds. Yeah, right, gotcha. So, um, but she had happened to make a mistake in that case, and it cost that man decades of his life. So you don't think it was a malicious It wasn't malicious. There, just, you know, it, was, it, was, it was inadvertent. And uh, you've seen that happen in so many different ways in which I think witnesses are like are honestly mistaken, meaning that they, they genuinely believe what they tell law enforcement, but well, they can still in, be mistaken. Yeah, it's always in the heat of the moment too, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, your adrenaline's through the roof, your heart rate's bumping, you know, whether it's someone shot got shot next to me or I shot someone in self-defense or, or this happened, you know, this type of, you know, thing happened to me, you know, um, yeah. Like, of course, like, I don't feel like that's the best time to, that's what's interesting, right? Like, that's all you have to go off of. And it's typically misconstrued because of all those variants. Right. Or, you, or you've got police, too. If you've got a witness who's been traumatized, like in a rape case, for instance, and uh, it happened at nighttime. So, that ooh, that's a red flag you have to look at. Because yeah. if it happened at nighttime, we have to be like, extra cautious about any eyewitness identification. Because at night, obviously, you, you typically cannot see as well. So you've got to look at all the different variables. Were there alleyway lights? Were there no lights? You know, what was the, the, the race of the accuser versus the race of the defendant? But if police, for instance, grab one guy who they happen to see walking down the street, 
and they bring that one person to this woman who's been tra- traumatized and she's, she's psychologically vulnerable, she could think that subconsciously, yeah, the police already did their job and found the guy who did it to me. That must be him. Yeah, that's the one who did it. She could think that, yeah. not necessarily with malice, but because that's what's going on in her subconscious mind. Yeah. So human memory is very fallible, more so than people realize. Um, if you look into like the neuroscience of human memory, it would shock you. But <laughs> we could have an entirely Let's talk about it. What's up? Discussion. What's up, man? I mean, what's it's, up? It's, uh, like there's research that shows that you, you, we hallucinate a large part of waking reality. So, In what aspect? I'll, gi- I'll give you an example. So whenever you look in, at, at an object, for instance, your brain is going to take in a lot of detail in, in terms of what you're focused on, but your peripheral vision, your brain can be hallucinating many of those details based upon what it thinks should be there. So, which is kind of fri- kind of frightening, but yeah. our, our brains are just enormously complex. But these are things that we haven't really figured out until recently because of neuroscience. But in the past, all we had to go on was inconsistent statements. Uh, is what this witness saying? Does it comport with like what the physical evidence show, or does the physical evidence contradict what the witness is, is, is showing? And we still rely on those things, but we're, we're getting a better understanding now of how people could make mistakes when it comes to like eyewitness identification yeah. because of how the human brain actually works. So you got to look at you have to look at every fact in the case to make sure that nothing's missed because sometimes the witness could be malicious and sometimes the witness might not be malicious in terms of what they say. And, and most of the time the witnesses are being honest what, because most of the time people who are charged by police are, are in fact guilty. But you expect that if you have a system in which the police are doing their jobs. Right. Well, so. but, that, but that happens a lot where they're not, right? Like, yeah. A lot of times it's just like show up, everybody's getting arrested. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. happens. It happens. Uh, yeah, it does, unfortunately. Like, you know, or, or showing up and you only, no one saw anything but one person did. That one person may not be telling the truth and then they make an arrest on that, you know. Exactly. Based or, on that. Or maybe the witness uh, has a motive to lie against the defendant. Uh, perhaps the person doesn't like the defendant. Uh, or maybe the witness doesn't necessarily don't, doesn't like that defendant, but likes the person who's the alleged victim, or they could have a relationship. Exactly. Of some kind. Oh, that happens a lot. So that it's, a lot. it's very frequent. I, I can only imagine how many people have been wrongfully convicted because that other person. It's just like anything else. They had enough people on their side, yeah. and they didn't have anyone, even though they didn't do anything wrong. They can't argue it. Yeah. Not it, not based on facts, you know, or, or as far as. Testimony and eyewitness and all that. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a, uh, a stabbing case uh, years ago involving a guy who was uh, leaving a bar, going out to uh, his girlfriend's vehicle. They were in his girlfriend's vehicle. The doors were all closed. The, the vehicle was uh, was was not locked. And these these guys come out of the bar and and. This is partially on video camera, you know, many of the incidents that happened. This is all public record. Right. And they are yanking, trying to yank open the door to get to the, to the, to the, uh, the guy who then became my client later, who's in the front passenger seat. And they're also smacking the vehicle. You can see all this happening. And they managed to open the door and pull him out, this group of guys, big, strong guys. who looked like they were on, had been taking steroids. And, and he was just an ordinary-sized guy. And they proceed to put him in a chokehold, and they start welling on him. So, you know, he's being punched in the head by the guy who's got him in a chokehold. Other guys are hitting him in the stomach. And his girlfriend even comes in 
and starts pounding on the guy who's got him in chokehold to no effect. Right. He continues doing what he's doing. And then my client, who happened to have a, a, uh, a knife on his person that he carried, you know, for, for defense, as he's losing consciousness and, and being severely beaten by these this group of males, he, he pulls out his knife and he lashes out and stabs the guy in front of him and the guy to the side. Uh, and there are multiple bartenders who are outside who are witnessing this, and his girlfriend witnesses this. Police get a call because there's been a stabbing, obviously. Yeah. They show up and they arrest my client. And not those so, guys. And not the guys. Holy shit. And here's what's here's what's what's horrible about it too is that you got the surveillance footage that shows that they came to him. He did not go right. to them. It shows them pulling open the door to the to the to, this is in Bozier Parish. Bozier Parish Sheriff's Office did this. It shows these guys yanking open this door, pounding on the vehicle, dragging him out, punching him, beating on him. Um, it's it's hard to really make out the stabbing aspect, but you can kind of see what appears to look like stabbing. And um the bartenders and my client's girlfriend and my client who voluntarily chooses to talk to police whenever they come to, to, witness, to the witness scene. In fact, he's the one who called 911. Happened after he had stabbed the guys, he got back in his vehicle and had his girlfriend lock the doors and he, he picked up the phone and called 911. So he, he, he voluntarily talks to them, tells them what happened. The girlfriend corroborates, the bartenders corroborate, surveillance footage corroborates the details that the footage could pick up. Right. And yet the police chose to arrest him. Right. So this is a case that, in my opinion, was a, an obvious self-defense case because his life was threatened. He was, about to, he was losing consciousness. He was, there was a disparity in numbers. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't facing... How many one, guys was it? It was, uh, I think it was five guys. Five guys and one dude. Yeah, so five large fellows yeah. and one small guy. It was a disparity in numbers. And, of course, if you're part of a group in a self-defense situation, if you're part of a group and you guys take collective action against somebody to hurt that person... You take you take on like the dimensions of being like one person gotcha. for purposes of like a group action, gotcha. and so if there's a disparity in numbers like that, that tilts the scale significantly in a self defense situation because even if they don't have lethal weapons on their persons like a knife or a gun, their collective action could lead to you being in imminent danger of death, great bodily harm. Right. So. At which in his case he was in imminent danger of death, great bodily harm because he was experiencing great bodily harm, but. In the moment, and w- when that happened, he was he was justified legally in pulling out a deadly weapon, a knife, to counter that disparity in numbers and that disparity in force that was happening, because it was imminent, not just imminent, but it was actually happening. Yeah. And there's a uh, a danger of death or great bodily harm in that situation. But the police, if they had known the law, or maybe they didn't know the law. I don't know. I don't think that they did. But if they had actually known self defense law, they would have looked at these case facts and would have not made an arrest of him. In fact, they would have made an arrest of the guys who approached him and physically battered him. He was justified in stabbing them. They were not justified in attacking him and beating him right. to the point of almost near near unconsciousness. So what so, happened? What, um, what ended up happening with this? I got the charges dismissed. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, he was charged with two counts of aggravated assault. Yeah, what were they charged with? They were charged with nothing. Nothing. So they yeah. got away with it. Yeah. And he... Okay, so... Never charged He was anything. a victim... And he was facing charges. They never got charged with anything. Nothing. Not, not, not even, like, not even work, a misdemeanor though? simple battery. How does that not work? The, like, so if the uh, officials don't initially charge someone, once you argue it, can they go back and charge those people? They, well, 
You know what I mean? So, like, say you proved that they were the aggressor. Yeah. And they did it. Why is there – was there a system in place where they can say, okay, well, this, these people are now being charged with it, even though they, it wasn't even on the table initially because of based on, you know, officials, you know, reports and everything? Yeah. Well, there, from a criminal law standpoint, there's nothing that you can do to force the police, the law enforcement to do their job, and, okay. which is scary. So, here, here, in a situation like that, they can make a decision on whether or not they want to – reassess their evaluation. But that's completely up to them. It's completely up to them. So they don't have to. They don't there's have no, to. They there's can, no abide, like law, lawful abiding, like force or anything where you say, you have to do this. They do not have to. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the case uh, years ago, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's, it's actual case law, that police don't have a responsibility to protect you, a legal responsibility to protect you. So and ba- ba- basically what – what what that means is that in this situation, um, they they're not legally required to go back and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. They have the discretion to do so because, you know, they're the employees of an elected official who would be the sheriff himself. And just like with the prosecutor's office, the DA himself, he's got assistant DAs who are under him, but the DA is an elected official. He has complete discretion in choosing which which prosecutions he brings. So if you go out and rape somebody or murder somebody, it doesn't matter how much anger the public has. The DA of your parents could choose not to charge you if he wanted to. It doesn't matter if he has a case in which there's 100% rock-solid proof. He has so much discretion that he could choose to not charge you, and there's nothing that the victim could do about it. It's only a certain level, right? That's at a state level? Yeah, that's at a state, state level. prosecution level? The same at the federal level, too. <clears throat> well, Prosecutors so, have a tremendous amount of power. A federal prosecutor could do the exact same thing if, if there are facts that implicate federal jurisdiction. He could choose not to prosecute That's you. what's frustrating, right? <laughs> like We have a system that is somewhat proven to work over, you know, hundreds of years right yeah. but then at the same time nothing has changed the only time that it changes is when there's a certain case where specifics are you know stuff happens and they're like okay well we need to go back and base this decision now we're making on this case because we've seen this scenario before yeah like what's scary is like how everything's still operating you know and of course i know you're in it and you're doing it and that's what you yeah. know and that's what you do but it is it is scary for these certain situations right like do you think laws need to be adjusted, like for those people, like because that that's what worries me. So, like in that scenario, if I'm that guy, I'm getting my ass whooped. I pull out a knife to protect myself against four or five gentlemen. Yeah, and <laughs> they are the ones that come out there initially started it. They're not getting charged. You know, that just that, and that's that's just one. Ex, you know, that's just one example. But I mean, there's 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 got to be multiple examples. Like if someone was shooting at you. Yeah. And you were in fear for your life, and then you shot back and you hit them. Yeah. But then you're charged, and they're not. Like it, that happens all the fucking time. We hear about yeah, it. You know? it, like, it could easily happen. That's why we have courts to try to address. You know. But uh, then even still. But even still, you might not you have. You can't. You can't go. You may not can go back. You can just try to get this person off. But then those there's still those people out there. Yeah. That aren't getting charged for it. Yeah. You, you from a criminal law standpoint, you would have no recourse if if the powers that be decide they didn't want to do anything about it. You could, however, you could bring a civil action. So like for that example that I use you that uses that former client, if he wanted to, he could have brought personal injury lawsuits against the guys who had attacked him and beaten him to the right. unconsciousness. But that's not to me, that doesn't bring the same level of satisfaction as knowing that people are held accountable criminally for their actions whenever they actually violate the law. Yeah. So you might be able to get some money out of them if they've got any assets, but that's not going to make you feel the same as you would as if they were punished for having come to you and attacked you and beat you senseless. So, 
the only the only the only checks and balances you have in a situation like that would be to would be at the ballot box. So you vote for a new DA or you vote for a new but sheriff, that, which is which is a kind of a very fucked up. You know what I mean? I to think about like okay, so the right person's in office now, so they're going to make something happen. Like you know, yeah. when we have this judicial system that's supposed to work and function and be you know equal to everyone, yeah. you know, or at least have you know some type of oh man, just like equality to it, I guess you know whatever. Yeah, you got, and it's, it's, it's definitely an imperfect system. Uh, it's not, it's not infallible. That's for certain. Um, and you got sometimes you have bad actors. I've had prosecutors who will push cases, in which I've sat down with them, walked through all the evidence, and and no reasonable person would disagree. Like it's it's solid evidence right. showing that the charges need to be dismissed. And the prosecutor to follow up with, so does he want to accept the plea offer? Would he, would he plead to this felony even if I don't give him any jail well, time? Well, isn't that also because of numbers? They don't want those, you know, like, isn't that something, like, to do with, you know, on that side, the prosecution side? Like, they don't want to show that they didn't, you know, convict X amount of people. I, th- I think if you're an unethical prosecutor, then, yeah, you would you may have that, that type of mindset. You're trying, to, you're trying to get your conviction numbers up. But if you actually care about the law and you're a professional and you're, at, you're following the rules of professional conduct, you should never, ever push a case for which there's not uh, an, sufficient evidence. Yeah. Never. You should, you should be willing to listen to, you know, opposing counsel. If opposing counsel can convince you that the case should be dismissed. But you can't be myopic. You know, you can't have blinders on. You have to be open-minded and be willing to listen. Yeah. So, but and sometimes that will happen. I've had pros- prosecutors do that before. And then, of course, my follow-up is, no, he's not going to plead anything because he's innocent. And he, re- he refuses to accept any plea offer. And we have to do further litigation and then eventually wind up dismissing. That's fr- super frustrating. Because you knew because- from the jump. Like, because from the jump, <laughs> you showed him everything. I showed, but yeah. yeah. But they still wanted to play games with the system in the hopes that maybe they could get something out of your client. But you had to work them hard enough to where eventually they realized that, okay, this is not worth the fight. I'm going to dismiss. Or they realized that, well, they're serious about going to trial. I don't want to go to trial and lose to this defense attorney. So I probably should dismiss. So. Is there some sort of like at the state level and, of course, the federal level too, is there like do you feel like there may be some sort of – Based on who's, you know, delegating that one area, they need to show a little bit of, you know, you you see what I'm getting at here? Like, they need to show, like, they've been doing their job, you know what I mean? Even though they may not, those uh, person on the other side may not deserve deserve it, but they're, you know, sitting here convicting these people left and right, even though, you know. You know, we've got, like, for serious cases, you've got, like, the right to a grand jury. So, grand juries, but the the, What's the difference between a grand jury and just a... Like jury of your peers. So a grand a, a jury of your peers is is is, is uh, constituted to decide guilt or innocence, right? Okay. A, a, in a trial, but a grand jury is something that a, that's formed uh, at the outset of a case. Okay. So if uh, you get into a self defense situation, as an example, and you shoot and kill somebody in self defense, but the police feel that you didn't do it in self defense and they arrest you, then you've got to go before. You got you got to have your case presented to a grand jury to decide whether or not an indictment will issue. So when an, an indictment comes from a grand jury, it's basically a formal accusation that the grand jury believes that there's probable cause to believe that you've committed the crime that you've been charged with. It's not the same thing as they believe that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt. They just simply believe there's just probable cause. Of course, probable cause is a low level of proof. Beyond a reasonable doubt is significantly higher. But the thing about grand juries is that I think they need to be revised because 
with the grand jury system, the prosecutor calls the shots. Oh. The prosecutor gets to literally dictate every shred of evidence that comes before the grand jury or doesn't come before the grand jury. He does not have to present exculpatory evidence if he doesn't want to. And the defense attorney has no right to question any witnesses before the grand jury or speak why, before the grand why is jury. That, you think? That's what the law says. It's it's a, it's a, it's there's 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 a uh, there's a joke within the legal system that any prosecutor who's worth you know uh, his salt can indict a ham sandwich. Yeah. Because he gets to he gets to stack the card. Well, then right? what's the point of having it? That's what's interesting, right? Like, what's the point of having that in those people in place whenever you know one side's already leveraged to win? Yeah, it's the theory is that the grand jury might might still serve as a check and balance ah, and still you. come back with a, a, a no bill, you know, no indictment. Yeah, but if the prosecutor, but, it's their job to prosecute, and they're, you know, providing all that evidence, and you can't object to it, yeah. or really, sh- or argue anything, or question any, like that's just crazy to me. I know you would think that we, we the defense would be able to, to at least like preliminarily do some of that, but. You don't have the right to do that. You do have the right to testify before a grand jury. But, again, if you're a defendant, you can testify before the grand jury, but subject to the questioning from the prosecutor. Your defense attorney can't ask you questions to in rebuttal or to rehabilitate you or follow up or show more details to show the full picture. The prosecutor gets to call the, call the show again even whenever you testify in front of a grand jury. So it's a one-sided affair. And it's, in my opinion, it needs to be revised. Um, I think it does provide some measure of checks and balances because grand juries do sometimes come back and don't indict, but they would probably indict more, fail to indict more often if the defense were, if there were a more equal playing field. Yeah. So, and if we had a more equal playing field too, um, you'd have fewer people who are actually innocent being drugged through a stressful, expensive system because you'd be catching it on the front end instead of catching it on the back end before or during trial. So I think that, I think that society would benefit by revising the system to make it more equitable. We'd benefit in terms of saving time and resources. I would think end. so, right? I mean, yeah. you would think on both sides would benefit from it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because like, you think of that, then they're having to go back and like right all the wrongs and like look like idiots or you know whatever <laughs> or you know like that this person wasn't done their you know dude you know or whatever whatever they were you know. Their due diligence. Their due diligence. Excuse me, I can't. Yeah, I can't think right now. But yeah. Um. So yeah, man. That's well. What's some uh, What's the story? Like, what's the story you have, or something you, that you can talk about? This public record that um that just that's kind of like the the prime example of who you are, what you do, and what you can get done. Okay. So I'll use a recent recent case as an example. So about two weeks ago, I had a client who. Uh, I got his conviction overturned uh, through a writ application to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. He had been charged with resisting an officer for failing to provide his name. This is an incident that happened at the Mackage Parish Library, and he was denied the right to an attorney. He was a homeless guy, honorably discharged veteran, uh, and he was indigent, so he was, he, he was entitled to at least a public defender. And he, had, he to his credit, had done an admirable job of, of Represented himself, even though he was denied his right to an attorney. But why was he denied the right to an attorney? Because the judge didn't follow the law. Okay. Yeah, okay. It, this is elementary criminal law. The judge should okay. have known better, uh, in my opinion. But he was wrongfully denied his right to an attorney, so he was forced to represent himself at the pretrial stage. 
and then at the trial stage also represent himself, which for him I imagine was a bit daunting. He gets convicted by the judge, of course, and the judge sentences him to 30 days in jail and a $411 fine for just simply failing to provide his name to officers who had approached him. So for, for an officer to be able to legally demand that you provide your name and or your identification, the officer's got to have a legal seizure of your person. So the seizure can be a detention or it can be an arrest. For it to be a lawful detention, there's got to be reasonable, articulable suspicion that you have committed, are committing, or you're about to commit a crime. And, and for probable cause, there's got to be a, basically a fair probability that you've committed a yeah, crime. Yeah, but that's subjective, right? It's very subjective, yeah. right? So officers have to make that call. But, um, you know, in my client's case, I argued that there was no lawful seizure. He had no, 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 the officers had no legal grounds to demand that he provide his name. There was no criminal activity that was underfoot. They never found any evidence whatsoever of any type of crime, even after they put handcuffs on him for failing to provide his name. Even after they searched all of his belongings, no criminal activity whatsoever. There was never any allegation that he had made any threats to anybody at the library, nothing. And, of course, under those facts, he winds up being convicted and doing uh, almost a month in jail, which is is uh, unbelievable in my opinion, but it did happen. And then I brought four assignments of error uh, to the Third Circuit and a 600-plus page writ application and because um, I got hired – after the after the case had happened, after the trial. Okay, yeah. So how's that happen? So he, his homeless guy doesn't have yeah. any money, doesn't have anywhere to live. Yeah. Represents himself. Why is he denied a right to an attorney? First off, um, because the judge didn't follow okay, the law. Okay, so that, that's yeah. it. Just okay, didn't follow so the law. Just, yeah. Oh, just chose to. You can't have an attorney. Yeah. So you got to represent yourself. Like so, then how do you get brought in? So uh, some concerned citizens uh, found out about his case and they set up a GoFundMe account and they raised money. And then they found me on the internet somehow. And they, they said they also had called uh, my former boss in Baton Rouge, actually. Nice. And he had recommended me up here in Shreveport. And so they reached out to me, we established a relationship, and they, they hired me through the GoFundMe funds. So I come in, file post-trial motions, and then take a writ application to the Third Circuit, a supervisory writ application. And we wait probably over seven months, and then... As of two weeks ago, they rendered an opinion in which they vacated his conviction unanimously and vacated his sentence and ordered a retrial on the grounds that he had been denied his right to the assistance of the counsel. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that to me, that case exemplifies why I do what I do. Because even though it's, it was a misdemeanor case, misdemeanor resisting an officer, and it just involved a failure to provide his name, people would say, that's a really trivial case. But that's, it's not trivial. That's because, what I was going to bring up because that you, someone hears that and that's not a big a deal. But yeah. if it's if they're doing that much at the like front of something that simple, yeah. that's not that big of a deal. Imagine what they're doing on a complex situation. Exactly, and it's uh, and this is something that you know, frankly, I think the judge and the prosecutor should have caught on the front end. Um. I mean, the prosecutor had been prosecuting for several decades. He should have known that, that that my client was entitled to an attorney and should have brought that to the attention of the judge. The judge should have known that as well, but no nobody caught it, um, unfortunately. But, yeah, and, and I got involved and then got the conviction overturned. But even though it's a, it was for a, a small case of misdemeanor, I think the ramifications are serious because the case kind of goes to the heart of, of the of the legal barriers that should be in place between 
law enforcement officers and civilians. You know, you got to have uh, evidence to be able to justify interfering with the liberty of a, of a citizen, even if he's a homeless man, even if he's somebody who it's easy for people to just kind of dismiss, subconsciously dismiss yeah. or overlook. You still have to care enough about preserving our system of justice to where you're willing to go go all the way for somebody who's even homeless. And, I mean, that's, to me, that case kind of exemplifies why I do what I do. I've handled murder cases, rape cases, far more serious cases in terms of the potential consequences. But in terms of recent litigation, I've got a lot of satisfaction out of getting his conviction overturned unanimously because it doesn't happen often, A, and then B, it means a lot to know that I'm holding the system accountable, yeah. even for somebody who's a homeless person. Yeah. So, well, do you think it's um like our due diligence as a, like a, a society to to take it upon ourselves to if we're in the area of something happening and we are an eyewitness? I mean, yeah. well, how do you how do you feel about that? Because there's a lot of people that just don't want to, you know, what I mean, don't want to deal with it and won't give their, you know, won't give their crop their their statement or whatever you know and yeah and basically that there's a scenario but they don't want to be tied up in it because they don't want to be connected to it somehow even though they probably should because they were there and then what if that person didn't do anything did or didn't yeah. if they did do something and they need to be held accountable or they didn't and they need some sort of protection i think i think that i think it comes down to the golden rule you know, we should treat others as we want to be treated. Assuming you're, you're, you're rational and you're saying, you know, if you're crazy and you like being punched in the face, you probably don't want to treat but, other people yeah, right, the same way. Right. But, uh, but assuming you're, you're, you're saying you should strive to treat people the way that you'd want to be treated uh, and just put yourself in, in, in the shoes of somebody else. You know, if you've been assaulted or you've been, been victimized by a criminal how would you want somebody to treat you if they're a third-party witness? You'd want that person to speak up for you. Or if you're an innocent person and you've been wrongfully accused, wouldn't you want somebody who saw what actually happened to come forward and tell, tell law enforcement that, look, this guy didn't actually do it. This person did it. He ran, he ran off down the street. Yeah. You missed him. You got the wrong guy. I was there. I saw what happened. Um, yeah, just put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Well, I think people just dismiss it and move on with their lives and don't realize the severity of not speaking up, right? Yeah. Because that person could then be convicted for that. In that guy's case, was a month, and that has nothing to do with anything, but they could be convicted for 30 years. We've seen these things. You could, yeah. You, know? you could have your life, I mean, completely devastated. For nothing. It, it, you, could, you could lose, like, if you, if you, you, could, you could lose your wife, you know, access to your children. You could lose custody of them if you got convicted wrongfully on a murder charge. I mean, you could lose a significant amount of financial assets if the, if the decedent's family decided to sue you in civil court because they thought that you were, you you blew their brains out of their loved one. Maybe you didn't. Um, I mean, it's there's so much on the line that I don't see how somebody could just be dismissive about not speaking up whenever they whenever they should. Well, and so here's another side of it. So we look at the other side. So you you have your side, and then you look at the other side of it where you're law enforcement. And especially this day and age of the past four or five years, what's been going on there. Yeah. You show up to something and then immediately all eyes are on you. And so then you're on pins and needles to try to make the, you know, decision. I mean, I feel like they may have something to do with it too. Like, okay, well I just need to get in and get out of here and get things done yeah. and, and not 
not exert myself anymore because then they may say that I did something, you know, you know, just, or just waiting for me to say the wrong thing or make the wrong movement. Yeah. You know, and, and not to mention there's, there's so many bad apples out there. Um, I talk about this with my wife all the time. She's like, there's so many, there's so many instances where police, there's police brutality and, you know, racism and all that, that happens. But on the other side of it, like, there's a lot of good cops out there that are trying to do the right thing, you know? Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. It's, I'm pro-police. And people say, what? You know, defense attorney saying that? A- absolutely. I believe very strongly in law enforcement. And we, we, as a society, we cannot blame law enforcement officers for failing to do their jobs if they're underpaid and or under-resourced. Yeah. You know, if you want to have a system that, that's, that works better, You've got to make sure these officers are paid adequately, that they enjoy their jobs, that their hours are not crazy, and that, that they're reasonable and manageable. That that means you've got to hire more officers and you hire more officers. If it means you keep the same number of officers you have and perhaps you just discount the trivial stuff, like maybe you don't make pot, pot arrests and you focus more on the rapes and homicides. You've got to structure your system to where every officer is, is not in a situation in which he or she feels like he's got to cut corners to be able to get the job done. Because what winds up happening is the job doesn't get done. Yeah. You know, you wind up getting the wrong person and then the guilty man goes free. Or you have other issues that arise. So Yeah. It's it's just something that like it's a constant battle and I feel like we're in and out of it every few years. Yeah. You know, it's like then it goes it gets to one extreme, right? It gets to one extreme to where crime is so bad that like, oh my God, we need to do something about crime. And then it gets policed and then at some point that gets too extreme, you know, and then there's, and then we have the pr- police br- brutality and you have all these cases where, you know, these officers are doing things they shouldn't be doing to, you know, potential suspects or whatever, yeah. people they're arresting. And um, it's just, it's just a back and forth game. I feel like we're always fighting it. Right. Yeah, it's, it is. And it's, it comes down to funding to a large extent, you know, like it's people want more transparency among officers, but if a police agency doesn't have the funds to go buy body cams, then what do you expect? Well, you know, this is one thing I want to talk about. Like, the regular average citizen who has an opinion and has a voting opinion does not understand what these people are doing. Right. They don't understand what these people are doing every single day. They don't understand that these people may go to a rape homicide and the next thing you know they're going to get a dog out of someone's yard. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't get it. Like, there's just so much... Like, not to say, I'm look, I'm in the middle on everything because I just feel like justice should be served as it should, you know. Right. But, like, people need to realize that these people are stuck in these scenarios day in and day out that's, um, you know, everything's a shit show. Yeah. You know, and just trying to make the right decisions. And then there's some bad seeds that just thrive on that and love it. Yeah. You know, but then there's some that are just trying to do the right thing, you know. I think, yeah, it's our good officers should be commended. You know, we should hug them, shake their hands, thank them every day, increase their salaries, give them more than adequate funding. The bad apples should be punished. They should be held accountable. But people don't understand the stresses that officers have to endure every day. They don't. I mean, it's some people do, but I think the majority of citizens don't. They're quick to blame and criticize based on something they know nothing about. I mean, you've got people who... You know, if an officer gets arrested for police brutality, people will automatically make an assumption. It doesn't matter, not even just for an officer, any type of criminal case. People will often jump the gun, so to speak, and make assumptions that, yeah, that person must be guilty or they would never have been arrested. Yeah. So where went the presumption of innocence? 
How do you know that? What evidence have you looked at as yeah. a civilian? Have you looked at all the evidence of the case? No. In fact, you will never look at all the evidence until the case is over, if, if then. The only people who will see all the evidence will be the, the jury. And that's what's so, scary, because those people are on the jury. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You, it's, um, but no, it's, I think people have, we need, we need to inculcate within society, like, this, this principle of not making assumptions you know, withhold judgment until you've heard everything. Yeah. A, and then B, try to empathize with people, whether it be, you know, defendants who are facing charges, whether it be officers who are dealing with the, the daily stresses of law enforcement work. Try to put yourself in those people's shoes so that you're not quick to rush to judgment and so that you can help them do a better job if possible. As a civilian, maybe if it means going to the ballot box and approving a tax increase to buy body cam footage for the officers, so be it. Or if it means raising their salary, so be it. Or if it means raising the, the salary of public defenders or hiring more public defenders, so be it. But don't complain about the system not working if you're not willing to be part of the solution. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the tell old tale, right? I mean, yeah. no one's, everyone's going to bitch about it. No one's going to do anything about it, you know, and then it just kind of works itself out. Unfortunately, sometimes too far one way or the other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so... Are you, I know you're a statistics guy, but I don't know how much you know off the top of your head. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's just talk, like, what do you think, like, how – I haven't even looked at the numbers, but, like, the wrongfully like wrongfully accused percentages, do you even know what that would be or has been over the past X amount of years they measure these things? I don't, I don't have, like, percentages off the top of my head, but I know there have been hundreds of people who have been exonerated through, say, DNA evidence. Yeah. Like, they've been clearly exonerated. There's no, well, the witness changed their mind. Do we know the witness changed their mind because they're telling the truth because the witness felt sorry about what they said initially? I mean, it's it's like this is unequivocal wrongful conviction. We've had hundreds of cases like that. It, it usually happens whenever there's DNA science involved. Right. So you've got actual raw science. Um, in terms of, so that's in a general sense. In terms yeah. of my practice, I think I probably get a disproportionate number of clients who are wrongfully accused just because I've become known since I've been up here for thriving off cases like that. Yeah. So because people know that if they come to me, I'm going to actually be meticulous in working the case. I'm not just going to sell a client out or go, go cozy up to the prosecutor and look for the easiest plea deal. I'm going to, if the client's innocent, I'm going to work the cases if the client is innocent from day one, start preparing for trial, even if trial never happens. So I don't know if I'm the best person to give you insight on personal numbers in terms of what I've seen in my practice area, but from, from my practice life, I mean, I've seen a significant number of people who have been wrongfully accused. More than not? More than, more, I mean, it's, I don't know if I'd say that. I'd probably say probably more so guilty than, than innocent, but the percentage, you know, if, if I had it quantified, I mean, it's, it'd be pretty high. You're looking at probably a fifth of my client's I mean, they're, they're factually innocent. But those cases often don't right. get brought to the public's attention because you know what winds up happening? You, you do all the defense investigatory work. You're meticulous. You build a rock-solid case. You present the information to the prosecutor, and the case gets dismissed. Right. So it never makes it to the limelight when there's a big public trial or anything like that. It's, it's, it's dealt with on the front end if you've done your job very thoroughly. The best way to win as a defense attorney it's the one at the pre-trial stage. Yeah. If you can, because to me, if you can win at the pre-trial stage, it makes you a more competent attorney than if you can win at the trial stage. You should be able to do both, obviously, if you've got the facts. 
because we can't pull bunnies out of hats, right? We have to deal with the facts as they are. But if you can get cases dismissed regularly at the pretrial stage instead of having to go to trial and 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 fight tooth and nail for every every wrongfully accused person and then get a jury to, fi- to find your per- client not guilty, you've saved your client money, you've saved your client stress and, and, and time. And to me, that requires more skill and more competency than just simply you know, walking into court and putting on a Shakespearean play yeah. in which you call your witnesses and you ask your questions and then the jury makes a decision. So... Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's interesting that you you represented just as many on one side as the other, and that you still continue to practice that way, right? Like, yeah. so you know, these people may be guilty, but you're just trying to get them, you know, try just, you know, as far as what you know, what did you actually do, and how these processes are in place, and are you going to be convicted based on that, or are they overly convicting you? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know it's and to, to follow up on that, people will often ask, well, what if you have a significant number of your clients who are guilty, how can you represent people exactly. like that? Exactly, yeah. And that's a great question to ask, but I'm not condoning any activity that a client engages in unless it's lawful activity. Then I will condone it. I will, I will 100% stand behind that client. If it's activity that's clearly criminal, my job, is not to, my job in the system is not to judge. It's to make sure that the system has due process. And due process is basically... Fancy legal terminology for making sure that you've got justice. Right. So it, ba- it means basically the same thing. If that means that you have to make sure that the other person's guilty, but they're not guilty of what they're charged with, you make sure that there's not overcharging going on, or maybe they're guilty and they're proportionately charged, then your job is to show the part of your client that maybe the prosecutor's not aware of. Maybe he's this is this guy's first offense, and he's got a past history in which – I don't know. He worked at animal shelters and volunteered in the community. He was a yeah. great guy. And he just happened to screw up one time. Your job is to bring that, show it to the prosecutor to help the prosecutor have a more comprehensive picture. So it's no matter what you do, whether you represent somebody who's guilty or who's not guilty, you're, you play an important role as a defense attorney. And the same will be true for a prosecutor. The prosecutor plays a very important role too. But do you feel the same uh, sense of urgency or excitement going into a non not guilty case versus a guilty case? I mean, if I, I know that's a fucked up question to ask, but I'm gonna I mean, I'm keep it real. Yeah, if I'm <laughs> so if I'm being honest, I mean, I, if I'm being honest, you know, I think that I feel more passionate about representing somebody who I, I strongly believe is not guilty right. versus somebody who I strongly believe is guilty. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to in any way shortchange representation for the guy who I believe is guilty. But I think that from a human standpoint. It would only be natural for you if you're a decent person. Only be natural for you to feel more passionate about the client who you strongly believe is innocent. Well, I ask this because there's a lot of criminal attorneys that would prefer a guilty client and just work, you know, make the money and then work a plea deal and be out of there. Yeah, and not do near the paperwork. So, I mean, me asking you that is only like I'm I'm keep keeping all this and you know in mind when I you know we talk about these things because I I've seen it. You know, I've been on the other side. I had a past life. I was on the other <laughs> side of this shit. So I understand. You know. Yeah. I think I mean that that is a good point because it's you know representing guilty people is probably much 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 easier than representing somebody who's actually. I would innocent. think so because you've got you know even if they don't admit it to you, I mean it's usually it's easier to resolve that case. Not always. Sometimes people will be uh, just insist on going to trial, which they have the right to do that, but they don't have the right to lie to a jury. But if they want to go to trial, they can go to trial. But if you have an innocent man or woman, you got the stakes are really high. 
because you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror at nighttime before you go to bed and know that as an attorney, you're doing everything in your power to uh, protect this client, to get this client's story fully in front of the jury, in front of the prosecutor, in front of all the different actors in the system, the judge. You may not be able to control the outcome completely because we're dealing with a lot of human discretion at every turn. The prosecutor, judge, jurors, there's no way for a, a an honest attorney to tell a client, yeah, I think you have an 80% chance of, uh, of, of walking away from, from this case from trial. If you do that, you're being unethical and you're, and you're, you're, you're full of crap because you have no way of knowing that. Yeah. All you can say is, look, you could be convicted. I think you probably won't, but I can't, I can't quantify yeah. that for you. But there's also a possibility that you could be convicted and you have to just let your client make a decision on whether or not the client wants to risk that possibility by going to trial. And that, that gets into, it's, you want to having somebody who's innocent. I've exactly. seen this happen more times than not who winds up accepting a plea deal exactly. because they're scared out of their minds of going to trial, being wrongfully convicted, and then doing decades in prison. Yeah, that's, so. what, I was, that's what I was alluding to earlier because, I mean, we've seen it happen. Yeah. Right? Um, there's so many cases where it's happened where these you know, are being dismissed now after they've spent so many times in finding someone that actually gives a shit about them to come back in there and say, hey, my client did not do these things. You guys just you know, didn't do your fucking job. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. I mean, or just, they didn't have anyone to represent them, and so then they, you know, of who's course, who's who? Maybe, maybe who, which happens a lot. Yeah, maybe you had. I mean, you might have had somebody who's just a warm body standing next to you in court, <laughs> who didn't really, didn't really adequately and thoroughly investigate the case, or work the case, or analyze the evidence. And you just from day one accepted the prosecutor's narrative and said, "Yeah, your client's guilty. Yeah, he probably is guilty. I'll go with what you're saying. I trust you." And then you want to have somebody who's wrongfully convicted. Yeah. It, it, it happens more more than people realize because the defense attorney doesn't do his job, doesn't adequately investigate. The jury could get evidence in front of them that looks okay. There's there's evidence here that shows he's guilt he's guilty, but if there's exculpatory evidence out there that is evidence that shows innocence and they never see it, the jury could wrongfully convict the man based on only what they saw, and then later you wind up having that that evidence showing innocence come to light because somebody found out about it. So yeah, so it just takes that right person. Takes the right person. <laughs> if, yeah. if they're not, then I mean, who knows what's gonna happen? I mean, it's like it's that's like what's scary, man. A it's car just scary. Game to, it's, it's scary, like to think yeah. about it. Um, and I'm just putting my mind, you know, like to, the reg- I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of regular everyday citizen, right? That just gets in a, pos- you know, not necessarily someone who's involved in crazy activities <laughs> all the fucking time and doing, you know, drinking and driving or you know, constantly in issue, you know, in the bar environment where they're getting into a dispute. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the regular average day Joe that may see put present themselves or they be presented in the situation to where something happens. Yeah. And they have to react. And, you know, based on the atmosphere, the people that then show up after it, and then everything else, what's gonna happen from there. That's I mean, it's scary to think about. Yeah, it is it's very scary. I mean, even as a defense turn, I can't imagine what how I would feel if I were in a situation in which I got wrongfully accused. Can you imagine how oh boy that would be a novel to write, right? Yeah. <laughs> Defense attorney gets wrongfully accused. But I can't imagine uh, like say you got in a self defense situation, which the stakes are really high. You had to shoot and kill somebody in self defense, but then you got arrested for murder. Can you imagine the level of stress you'd be experiencing, the level of anxiety and worry? And you're being told that yeah, the prosecutor let you plead to negligent homicide, a lower, lower, lower charge. Uh 
do five years in prison. But, but if you then, go to trial and you're convicted, you get life without parole. What do you want to do? Right, exactly. You're going to so, take that deal, right? Because, <laughs> but, then, but then when you do that, you're never going to be able to have a firearm again. You're never going to get probably good gainful employment because, you know, what's on your record, you know, yeah. um, and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's exactly. You deal with consequences like that. I mean, you deal with reputational loss. Uh, it's just and, – and not only that, but also you lose five years. You know? Yeah, you that should too. Do, you should do no time if you're legally right. innocent. But, I mean, if, I, if I'm in those shoes, I might – that's what's – you're like, shit, I get it. You know, I get it. I'm like, I could go to prison for life or I can just take this lesser charge and only serve five years. Yeah. You know, you, at least you have a light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. When, you, when, you're, yeah. when you're faced with that scenario to where you're like – it may be dark the rest of my life. You know, it, it's understandable, but at the same time, it's fucked up. You know, it's like, damn, man. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is. It's, it's, I mean, even as a defense attorney, I think that if I were in a situation like that, I might would be forced, not forced, but, well, coerced is, is probably a better word. Right. But into taking a deal like that. Even yeah. if I knew I were legally innocent, I don't know if I would risk. Well, because you're putting it in their hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, who knows, and then it's based on the, like you said, the, the, Elected official. <laughs> yeah, plays yeah. a big role. I could be the, the greatest criminal defense attorney that walks into a Caddo Parish courthouse, but and the jury just still not, they still not be there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it happens. So it's knowing what I know about juries, you know, and you're dealing with the human element. I don't know how I would react in a situation like that. What's, I'd probably be more inclined towards having the light at the end of the tunnel, like you said. What's your advice to someone like just? Moving forward, like just regular life, like moving forward, like what what should they do? What should they watch out for? What should they, you know, like where should they their headspace be? Don't do stupid things. That's right, of course. <laughs> but I'm saying yeah. like if you're in, say you're in a self-defense situation or say you're in, you know, just a scenario to where you're nearby and something happens and you're involved, you know? Yeah. I think um – yeah, self defense is probably going to be one of the highest stakes. So to, to I feel like follow right? up on that, yeah, if you're dealing with the possibility of like killing somebody and facing a possible murder charge, that's about as high as it gets. Sort of raping somebody, but for rape, there is no excuse on that. So it's, I mean, it's there's no such thing as excusable rape. So uh, there is a such thing as justifiable homicide, though, if you act in self defense. Right. So let's just roll with that. So um, if you're in a, in a situation like that, a don't ever go to the action. Let the action come to you if it's going to come to you. You don't, you don't want to be the guy who has a gun in his hand who who goes to to the action. Because well, well, how does how does that appear? Well, everybody's got that uncle that says, "Oh, so and so does comes." You know, <laughs> I'm gonna shoot their ass. You know what I mean, or whatever. You know. Yeah, you don't you don't want to be the initial aggressor or even appear to be the initial aggressor because the thing is, a jury is going to have to make inferences about what they think happened. They will never know exactly what happened. They'll only be able to infer what happened based on how the evidence appears, and that's scary too. So if it's just you out there and there's no third party witness and the police show up and you've got a gun and somebody's dead, that's scary. Because yeah. what if a jury doesn't believe your your, your story? Maybe they, maybe there's something there that looks like you were their initial aggressor. Maybe you were on Facebook for the past three years posting uh, Second Amendment rights twenty four seven. You yeah, know what I mean? Like not saying there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying how would that look? Yeah, it could cause a prosecutor to look to raise his or her eyebrow and say, "I'm just going to charge this guy and let a jury sort yeah. it out." He shouldn't do that, right? You have the right to right. You have Second Amendment rights, but I mean, you just don't know what's going to go on in the head of anybody looking at a file mm-hmm. that comes across their desk. But best thing to do is let the action come to you in a situation like that, and just—I mean, just—just just follow the law. If you don't know what the law is, educate yourself. 
So in a self-defense situation, you can use lethal force if you're in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. It can't be the guy, if I walk up to you and slap you in the face, you cannot pull out a gun or a knife and kill me. Yeah. Because I use non-deadly force and you use deadly force. So what you just did was disproportionate to what I did. Flip the table. Which, or vice versa, yeah. And because it's disproportionate, a reasonable jury is going to construe that as not being reasonable. So you have to have a reasonable belief reasonable belief that you're in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm and that the killing is necessary to save yourself from that danger. Yeah, That's because, what the law actually says. Yeah, because a lot of people, you, I've heard this, a lot of people <laughs> say, well, you can just say, you, I was in fear for my life. Yeah, it don't work. It doesn't work that way. That's not what the law. There's got to be. Yeah. There's got to be some kind of proof. Like there's got to be proof. Like it's it's um every element. You know, you look at a self defense case. You got to have you got to have in, uh, innocence. You can't be the initial aggressor. To use layman's terms, you got to have uh, imminence. It's going to be about to happen right now. Can't be uh, five years from now. I, I, somebody may shoot me. It's got to be about right now. You got to have proportionality. So you can't be disproportionate force. And there's the avoidance principle. In Louisiana, we have a stand-your-ground law. So as long as you're lawfully in a place where you have a right to be, you have no requirement to retreat. You can stand and meet force with proportionate force. Um, proportionate. Key proportionate term. force is a yeah. key term. Like people often screw up in that sense. Yeah, that's what I would think. Yeah, they, yeah. they, they, they uh, like, just they, like, here's a scenario. You tell me this when you say that. That's what I think of. Guy comes in to rob a store. Yeah, threatens to stab the cashier. Cashier unloads a clip on him. And see, you could argue that, right? Yeah, you you have to know all the facts of that right, situation because here's how here's how I would look at that. Just that hypothetical. Yeah. First thing I would look at would be the eminence element. Okay. Um, I look at all the elements, but the eminence element would be the first thing that pop up in my head as a defense practitioner. One way to look at that is to look at what's called the AOJ triad, so ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. So. The guy has the ability to use that that knife and stab the cashier if he appears appears to be that way, right? If he's if he's right. you know help, if he's not in a wheelchair and strapped down, right? If he can stand up and walk around, then he's got the ability to do it. Well, does he have the opportunity? That's the next question to ask yourself when you're evaluating whether you're on this eminence. side of the counter. Maybe there's a counter between you and yeah. him, and maybe 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 that counter goes all the way up to eye level, and he has no way of reaching over and stabbing you, and you've got metal bars between you and him. The opportunity there. Is, 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 is that part is gone. And if any part of that triad is gone, you can't meet the eminence requirement. And if you can't meet one element of the self-defense requirements, you lose on self-defense. You can go to jail. <laughs> but the jeopardy element would be, well, is it about to happen right now? So you'd have, I'd have to know more about that hypothetical and know right. what would apply in that situation, but you would fail on at least the opportunity element. But now say it's counter that's as tall as this, and you're right there. Yeah. And you tell me you're going to uh, stab me if I don't give you money. Well, my belief has to be reasonable. If you tell me that and you've got your hands like this and I can see your hands and I don't see any knife on your person, the eminence element is not quite yet there. Right. It's arguably really close. And if we're just – most security cameras aren't picking up audio. Exactly. You know, we're just video. you just video. So, so it's like you could say that person threatened you, but – Who's gonna know? Did, who? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's you're, you're close to it now. But now, if you start reaching out and you pull up a knife, and I see a knife, well, then I've got concrete evidence. Okay, eminence is obviously being met. He's threatening to use deadly force against me. I can respond with proportionate force. That is deadly force, and then you unload on him, completely justified. 
completely. Really? Yeah. But but if 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 a guy's a hundred feet away from you and he says, "Hey, give me your money, or I'll go stab, I'll stab your ass." Right. He's there brandishing a knife. Yeah. Um. He's got the ability. Again, opportunity's not met. That gotcha. AOJ tried on eminence. So, and then you can look at all the other elements, but just the eminence element was the first thing that would pop up in my head because he's so far away. Like the eminence element is not quite there. It's not about to happen right now. But now, if he starts running towards you, then you have your face with yeah. That's where things get dicey. Okay, he's he's a hundred feet away. He's seventy five feet away. Fifty feet away. But there's what's called a teller drill in which somebody can cross twenty one feet of distance with a knife or or any type of weapon. In general, a person can cross twenty one feet on an ordinary surface in one and a half seconds, which is about the time that it takes to draw a weapon and fire if yeah. you're a trained police officer. So. What if it's, you're just an armed <laughs> citizen? That's what's scary too, right? Yeah. Because if you're not trained enough, well enough with that firearm, and not even that, you could be the best shooter in the world. I've seen a bunch of fat-ass people on YouTube that shoot guns. <laughs> yeah. But if your reaction time's not there, you know, or whatever, like you're not, you're, you've never been put in a fight-or-flight scenario, you can make all types of mistakes. You like could, just because yeah. you can shoot a target all day long don't mean shit. You know, if you're not in that scenario, who knows – 100 yards to 50 yards, you might get freaked the fuck out and start shooting right then. That's what's, that's what's scary about all of it, right? Yeah. Is it's, it's always comes down to a lack of, of training and a lack of awareness. Yeah. I feel like, you know. Exactly. And that could go for the, from anywhere from a training with a gun to awareness of the law to awareness of a, a scenario to where you feel threatened, all those things. And I don't feel like we're ever going to be broadly educated on that because we just seem to educate ourselves on the shit that's mundane. It's not actually – what doesn't really uh, apply to what you know we're dealing with in a real life scenario every day. Yeah, something that could be potentially useful. Yeah, like, exactly. As in saving your life. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, you would think people would know more about that, or at least try to learn more about it. But um, yeah, it's uh, there's nothing like more horrible I think than having a client who's honestly mistaken. But I acted in self defense, and they genuinely believe that. But you have to tell that client under the law you did not. Right. Under the law, you're legally guilty, and that's hard. Because there's some people who do act in self de- self defense in their minds, not with any malice or ill intent, but because they thought they were justified in acting in a certain way. To give you an example, say cashier example, you brought up a great example. That guy. Okay, say he um, you're slow on the draw. You're, you're very hesitant about shooting this guy. He lunges over the counter, tries to stab you, misses. While you're pulling out the gun, he sees you have a gun. He freaks out and he instantly starts to run away. You've now entered a situation Ooh. in which he's retreating from you. Can you then walk out? Can you then follow him behind the door really fast and then start doom, 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 shooting at him while he's running away and his back is turned? You cannot because here's why. You can, but you're not going well, to be you, able you, to you, you claim can. self-defense, right? You can, yeah. and you would be charged with yeah. murder. Yeah, so, that's fucking crazy. Because you would not have a reasonable belief that you were in imminent danger of, of, of uh, death or receiving great bodily harm, that the killing would be necessary to save yourself from that danger. Eminence is gone. There's no danger of you dying when he's running away from you. You'd be charged with murder. Even though he's the one who precipitated the whole situation, if you shot and killed that guy in that scenario, you could be charged with murder and do life without parole on something like that. But if you're not, not aware of that, you could be honestly mistaken in thinking that, I thought I had the right to do that. If he tried to kill me, I can, I can, I can neutralize him. Well, okay, okay, so, yeah, because you, at that point, are, you have more force than he does too, right? So like that, that has something to do with it or it doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, so like say, say he tries, I have a gun. I decide not to shoot him. He tries to stab me, misses, but then I come around the counter as he's walking away and we'll 
try to whoop his ass or whoop his ass. Like, what's the scenario then? Mm, it depends on that. Depends on what starts because happening then, because point. then the the ratios change, right? The dynamics change. Yeah, right. right. So I've, I've at this point I had more force than he did, but now I don't because he has a knife and I'm. You're just using your fist, right? Maybe. Yeah. Well, if he's if he or, or I just know jujitsu and I just you know submit him <laughs> and break his arm or so you know whatever you know like. Yeah, it's uh. If he starts using like, turns around and then tries to reengage with you, then use you that knife again. Then you can then the ante is up and you can you can engage in lethal force again at that right, point. Right. So, you'd almost have to break that case down into two separate cases, like the first set of case facts, even though they they happen within a relatively short period of time. It's two different. Yeah. It's really two scenarios. separate cases, but um, but yeah, you would uh you could you'd be justified in using lethal force if he upped the ante. But even if he didn't have a knife. He could use lethal force with just his bare hands, and you could too. That's why you have to be careful about the amount of force you use in a situation like that. For instance, if you and I get into a fist fight, and we're on the sidewalk somewhere, maybe outside of a bar, we're both drunk, what have you, and um, I'm the one who comes up to you first, I'm the initial aggressor, and I punch you in the face, you're justified in hitting me back to defend yourself. But then say you start going beyond that. You're just enraged. You got alcohol in your system. You're like, I don't know why this dude would do this to me. You know, I'm about to teach him a lesson. You jump jump on top of him and you start pounding my head into the pavement. I like, see so you literally are picking me up and like doing yeah. that, right? Or you're punching me in the face and my skull keeps hitting the back of that pavement. That could cause brain damage, aka great bodily harm, or it could possibly cause death, depending on how much force you're using and the, the, the frequency of, of the of the, the poundings. At that point, you could be entering a situation in which you're using vastly disproportionate force against an initial threat. And if you were to kill me, you could be charged with murder. So it's pe- people have to, especially in a self-defense context, to be very careful about the amount of well, force they use. Well, this all brings to light this. If you're going to use any force, you better be trained on that force. Exactly. Because yeah. if not, <laughs> you could go overboard, yeah. right? Like if you're just that... Regular guy who just, oh, I saw red, and then there it is. Yeah. Then you don't have an argument. You're in, you're in trouble, yeah. it's It's got to be proportionate and always necessary. Every single blow, every single type of, uh, you know, self-defense action has got to meet all the dip, all the elements of self-defense. So. Well. Yeah, it's. It's frightening. It's frightening. <laughs> um, I, not so much to me. I don't try to, I don't think about putting myself in the scenarios. Um. But just, I feel like I'm aware enough to try to avoid those scenarios. If I am in those scenarios, try to make the right decisions. But there's a lot of people out there that just may not be educated, yeah. you know, or never been in that type of scenario. And then, then it's fight or flight. You know, it's just one of those things that takes over, and then it may be to your advantage or your disadvantage. Yeah, exactly. You could win the we could win the battle, but lose the war. Exactly. Like you, could, you could you could win the fight, but then go to prison for the rest of your life. Exactly. Which is not to me would not be worth it. No, hell no. But, well, look, man, we've we've talked almost damn near an hour and a half. I think I think we got a good good chunk of stuff out. We'll have to talk some more next time. But uh, are there any before we wrap this thing up? Is there anything you want to talk about or anything we didn't cover or any points you may want to get across that we didn't say? Um, I just I would like to thank you for having me on. Oh and, yeah, man, and letting me be a part of your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate your time. You didn't have man. to do that, but I appreciate that. Oh hell yeah, dude! Always a good time chatting with you, man. Your your wealth of knowledge, especially in your industry, and I, I'm always excited to hear everything you have to say because you, you break it down, you know, not just, you don't 
it's never one-sided. You always present the facts, right? Yeah. And I think that's important. I think that's important in what you do in your career. I think that's extremely important. And so I admire you for that, man. So I appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks.